You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual People have spoken, and I have to address this. This topic at the top of the podcast, or I will be in trouble with almost all of the listeners who've emailed me over the holiday break. We recorded a few shows in advance over the holiday break, so we weren't able to talk at the top of the show about duck fucking dynasty dildos. So now we will talk briefly about duck fucking dynasty dildos. Uh, I was on CNN actually the week the story broke and I didn't say that I thought Phil Robertson should get his show taken away from him. I could give a flying fuck about Phil Robertson who of course famously is the patriarch of these duck fucks who have this show on A&E that I've never seen about a bunch of rural gun shooting rubes who dress up in camo to hide from ducks because ducks are scary and they blow little horns that they make that literally make the ducks think they're there to fuck them. So I'm not sure if God is okay with that, like bearing false witness to horny ducks with a duck call so you can shoot them. Seems like that might be a not okay in Leviticus somewhere, I'm just saying. Anyway, Phil Robertson said in an interview with GQ, it seems to me Phil Robertson famously said in an interview in GQ, it seems like to me a vagina as a man would be more desirable than a man's anus. That's just me. I'm just thinking. Usually when someone begins with anus vagina, when they're talking about gay rights issues or sexual orientation, they're not thinking. But let's go on from here. I'm just thinking there's more there. She's got more to offer. I mean, come on, dudes. You know what I'm saying? But hey, sin, it's not logical, my man. It's just not logical. And then, of course, he added, everything is blurred on what's right and what's wrong. Sin becomes fine. You start with homosexual behavior and just morph out from there to bestiality, sleeping around with this woman and that woman and that woman and those men. Oy, 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 oy. Okay, this is his opinion. This blew up into a huge scandal, right? Some people were offended. A&E suspended him, which was a bullshit PR move on A&E's part. Sarah Palin, without having read his comments, rushed to his defense. But, you know, Sarah Palin, without having written or read her own book, went on TV and talked about that. And it became just another tussle in the culture war. Some people believe this stuff. Some people do think homosexuality is a sin and they shouldn't have their TV shows taken away from them. And that's the First Amendment. And, of course, the religious right and social conservatives, having accused us so long of trying to redefine marriage, have been busily redefining the First Amendment to mean I have a right to my opinion and you do not have a right to an opinion about my opinion, that I get to state my opinions, my ignorant, ill-informed, bullshit opinions boldly and unashamedly, and you are not allowed to state your opinions as boldly or unashamedly. You're particularly not allowed to have opinions about my opinions, which is just such fucking bullshit, right? Anyway, in the wake of that, more tape emerged where Phil Robertson, after people said he wasn't homophobic and this wasn't about hatred, it was just about the Bible and sin said this of gays and lesbians. They are full of murder, envy, strife, hatred. They are insolent, arrogant, God-haters. They are heartless. They are faithless. They are senseless. They are truthless. They invent ways of doing evil. That's what he said of us. Nothing hateful about that, I guess. But you know what? I don't care. Phil Robertson obviously is squicked out by gay sex. Guys doing each other in the butt is not all of gay sex any more than creepy 
adult men fucking 15-year-old girls is all of straight sex, which is, of course, what Phil Robertson did. He married his wife when she was 15 years old. Phil Robertson also went out in the same interview and encouraged adult men to date 15-year-old girls and marry them because they're much more easily manipulated because you can bend them to your will more easily. Imagine, let's just pause here in the midst of this fucking Duck Dynasty rant to just imagine for a second if I got on this show and said to adult gay men, I think you should date high school sophomores, date 15-year-old boys because they are really easily manipulated. They will pick your ducks, whatever that means. TikTok, how long would it take before the shitstorm on the right exploded about me being a pedophile and normalizing pedophilia and it being true that all gay men are interested in teenage boys and oh my god, blah, blah, blah. It would take an ins- and no one would be rushing in to defend my right to my opinion and my First Amendment right to have an opinion that nobody else is allowed to have an opinion about, which is what it says in the First Amendment. Anyway, Phil Robertson said all these shitty things about gay people and he believes that gay sex is gross. It, 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 it icks him out. And in a way, that's fine. You know, I've sometimes come to the defense of comedians who've done bits about gay sex kind of icking them out. People like you know, Bill Maher sometimes uh, trades on comedically like his discomfort with gay sex. So does Howard Stern. They also are very vocal supporters of gay rights, of gay marriage, of all the rest of it. And what you see, I think, when they are allowed to kind of acknowledge their own discomfort is that they've reasoned their way past their discomfort. That they no longer look at their discomfort and say this is the reason gay people shouldn't be married or entitled to their full civil equality because I think gay sex is icky. That's not – it doesn't follow then that gay people should be discriminated against because I have the problem, which is what Howard Stern and you know Bill Maher and other comedians tend to be saying when they joke about their discomfort. Now, this guy and the people who rushed in to support him, the Sarah Palin's of the world, they don't pivot from ick to but whatever works for you, we're all equal under the law. They pivot from ick to you should be discriminated against under the law. You shouldn't be allowed to marry. You shouldn't be allowed to serve openly in the military. You shouldn't be protected from workplace discrimination. You shouldn't be covered under hate crime statutes because because your sex is icky, which is, you know, let's Put the shoe on the other foot. I think cunnilingus is gross. Ew, ick. However, I support the full civil equality of straight people and lesbians and bisexuals everywhere. I don't look at cunnilingus and I look at it a lot because I have to edit a porn festival every year. I watch a lot more cunnilingus in my advanced age with this heart, this ticker on the line than most gay men ever have to. I don't look at cunnilingus and go, oh, because ick, therefore – Straight people should be persecuted under the law because they do that icky cunnilingus thing. And I would be fine if Phil Robertson said, you know, gay sex squicks me out. That's fine. It's fine for Phil Robertson to be squicked out by gay sex. I'm squicked out by straight sex. What it would be nice to hear from the Phil Robertsons of the world and what you are hearing increasingly from a lot of straight guys who are legit kind of squicked by it in the same way that I'm legit kind of squicked by straight sex is my squickiness does not mean – you should be oppressed politically, socially, culturally in any way. My squickiness is my issue. But Phil Robertson wants to make his squickiness everyone's issue because Phil Robertson thinks gay people are evil murderers. This is a guy who just brought out a line of assault rifles who thinks gay people are dangerous and evil and full of hatred. And that we are the arrogant God-haters, that we hate Phil Robertson's God who, of course, famously said, 
the greatest commandment, or the second greatest, the greatest commandment, of course, is to love God with all your heart. The second greatest, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. I'm not sure I love Phil Robertson, but I'm not a Christian. Those aren't my fucking marching orders. Phil Robertson, you gotta love me. You gotta love anus fucking me. I don't gotta love 15-year-old twat fucking you, but you gotta love pushing 50-ish ass fucking me. Jesus said so. And a little digression here quickly. However offensive the things that Phil Robertson said about gay people were, what he said about black people was so much more offensive. He grew up in rural Louisiana uh, during Jim Crow, under Jim Crow. And he said that black people were better off. They were happier under Jim Crow. He would pass them in the cotton fields and they were singing and no one was singing the blues. And no black person when he was a young man ever said to him that they were unhappy. This, of course, at a time when a black person who looked funny at a white person in rural Louisiana could be lynched. So, yeah, they're not going to really run to you complaining about their plight. And that was just so much more staggeringly offensive and clueless and ignorant and ill-informed. And yet we everybody, the whole world jumped on what he said about gay people because he talked about gay anuses and who doesn't love a good shitstorm about gay anuses, myself included. But what he said about black people, infinitely more offensive. All right, there's my Duck Dynasty rant that by request, unlike Rachel Maddow, we do take requests on this show. And there's my Duck Dynasty rant. There was so much else to talk about. Chris Cluey came out about having been fired from the Vikings for his activism around marriage equality. A big love you and thank you to Chris Cluey for putting his ass and his career on the line for social justice and equality, and we appreciate it. Uh, also, Aaron Schock, Representative Aaron Schock from Illinois, outed sort of this week. Rumors, outing, people talking about whether Representative Aaron Schock, who you may remember as the hot guy in Congress, he's the one with the abs, who's always on the cover of the fitness magazines, he's the one with the world's gayest Instagram account, and that's something because I've seen Terry Miller's Instagram account, and Aaron Schock's is gayer. Well, rumors surfaced that he was gay and people are talking about outing him and people are debating whether outing is legit tactic and la 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 la. That happened too, but we can't talk about that because we have to talk about those duck fuckers. And we have. And we never will again. And now your calls. Hi, Dan. This is a mid-30s by woman calling. Um, I have a question. Um, about negotiating open relationship stuff. A friend of mine recently, friend who male friend who I've become friends with over the last couple of years, um, recently told me that he had feelings for me, and he's married, and um, that immediately kind of set off some warning signals for me, and I was pretty uncomfortable and told him as much, felt like it was inappropriate. And after that, he told me that he is in an open relationship with his wife and that it wouldn't be getting in the way of their relationship if something happened with us. But I still am a little apprehensive of all of that and would kind of like to hear that from her maybe, or I guess I'm just trying to figure out how I can make sure that everything's on the up and up and that we kind of do whatever happens without anyone getting hurt. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on that and then just any sort of general tips for someone new to negotiating the open relationship field. Um, seems kind of like a minefield sometimes. I'm personally nervous about getting overly emotionally involved with this person. I think that it's maybe someone I could have real feelings for. So 
but he is married, so I'd want to be careful about that. And then also, I would want to figure out how to how that all works without risking starting a emotional and like strong connection with this new person that would then make maybe make it tempting to leave their wife or something like that. I, it all just makes me nervous, and I'm curious about how it's managed and any tips that you might have. I'm going to start at the end of your question and work my way back to the issue you raised at the top of your question. Um, how do you control for becoming overly emotionally involved with someone that you can't possess ultimately, right? That you can't marry. He can't be your husband because he's somebody else's husband. Um, you know, it's fine to have feelings for somebody that you're fucking. It's actually a good thing to have feelings. What you can't have with someone who is – married to someone else who has a primary relationship with someone else is you can't have proprietary feelings. You can't have feelings that include uh, you know, a desire to ultimately possess that other person in that way that some people mistakenly believe marriage functions as if it's a deed as opposed to a commitment. Uh, so going into it, if you're the kind of person who when you get sexually and emotionally involved with someone, you feel like you want to be that person's one and only, if you feel that that person being involved with or emotionally entangled with or sexually involved with anyone else is threatening and makes you jealous and upset. You are not cut out to be someone's regular piece on the side. You are not cut out to be the third or a secondary partner. If being with you, if what you know of yourself emotionally is that when you're involved with somebody, you want to possess them and you do not want them to be with anyone else. This man is with somebody else. He ain't for you. But if you can be with someone, have feelings for them, feelings of affection, even feelings of love without feelings of possessiveness, awesome. Go for it. It's better to have sex with people that you like and have feelings for. It's better to be involved with someone that you like and have feelings for than to be involved with someone that you could give a shit about or you could take or leave. That should be obvious to everyone, right? The issue of the wife though. This man is married and you've known him for years, you say, and in that time, uh, you've never known him to be sexually involved with anyone else. Um, in that time, he's never mentioned to you that he has an open relationship with his wife and a lot of people who are in non-monogamous relationships are socially monogamous. They appear to be monogamous. They don't run around saying, we're not monogamous or we're monogamous. They allow people to assume that they're monogamous and they run the non-monogamous aspects of their lives on a need-to-know basis and the people who need to know do not include casual friends or acquaintances or even close friends or family members. So some of those people only come out about it the fact that they're in an open relationship when they hit on you or someone else, right? Because that's when someone needs to know. The issue is that you need to ask him about, you know, how does the wife factor into this? Is she okay with me as someone you might get involved with? And this sometimes gets hung up on the kinds of open relationships that some people have. Every monogamous relationship is exactly the same. Neither of us fuck other people. Every open relationship is a little snowflake. It's a unique little snowflake and everybody has their own agreements and rules and regulations. And for some couples, one of those rules is don't ask, don't tell. I don't want to hear about it. You do what you want to do. I'll do what I want to do a little bit on the side. It won't overtake our lives. It'll take nothing away from you. But I don't want to hear the details. I don't want to know who you're involved with. And of course, if that's their arrangement, you can't then go to the wife and hear it from her mouth that it's okay. And that's a problem. But maybe that's not their arrangement. So go to him and say, hey, 
open relationship, awesome. Yeah, and of course, you know, a lot of people have them and are now to everybody about them. So the fact that you've just sprung this on me doesn't mean I don't believe you. It doesn't mean I don't believe that the wife ain't down with it. But I'd kind of like to hear it from her. Trust but verify, as Ronald Reagan said a million years ago, that you trust him but you want to verify this with the wife because you want to make sure that you don't end up hurting her feelings and that honest to God, this is an open relationship and honest to God, you are someone that she is comfortable with her husband seeing. Hopefully, they have the kind of open relationship where he can produce his wife, habeas matrimonial corpus. He'll produce his wife for you and she will say, down with it, fine, over drinks or whatever, or maybe casually at a party, just like to verify, yeah, yeah it's a problem. Yo, I like you. You guys have fun. Here's the keys to my husband. Take him for a spin. But if he counters with, we have a don't ask, don't tell arrangement, she has her fun on the side and I don't know about it and don't want to know about it and I have my fun and she doesn't know and doesn't want to know, then you have to really assess how trustworthy you think he is. Then you have to look around. You could even then ask for a reference, if not to his wife, then to some other partner that he's also been with and it was a happy experience and nobody got hurt. But you may have to take a leap of faith there depending on how badly you want to jump this man's bones. But set aside your horniness, set aside your desire for him and really coldly assess his trustworthiness and whether you think irrespective of your desire to justify so that you can get into his pants if you really think that he's telling the truth, if indeed he says that he and his wife have a don't ask, don't tell arrangement before you jump into his bed or his pants. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28th Street female um, and have a question. My husband and I, when we have sex, is great, lovely, but um, usually lasts about 20 minutes, 30 minutes. But when my husband drinks Red Bull and vodka, for some reason, it goes, it can go on for like an hour plus. Um, he's hard the entire time. He says he enjoys it the entire time. Um, it's just like his Viagra or something where he can just keep going and going. And I'm wondering like, what the hell is up with that? I've never heard of this before. I'm just throwing it out there in case anyone else has heard of this or experienced this before. I assume that if Red Bull had this effect on men, that it made them last longer and gave them supremely powerful erections that just wouldn't quit, that they'd be marketing the shit out of that, that that would be the bonus wings that Red Bull would talk about in their commercials. Um, so my best guess, based on the fact that I've never heard of this before, that Red Bull isn't marketing the product this way, is that this is a psychological thing. The boner is Tinkerbell, right? You got to believe. And there's something about Red Bull that your husband associates with lasting. Maybe coincidentally, he had a Red Bull and then one night he lasted forever. And now he believes that if he has a Red Bull, he will last forever. And so he does because dicks are Tinkerbells. But – who knows? Maybe other people are experiencing this and those people are welcome to call in and report to us. Also, we should probably mention the alcohol component. As Shakespeare said, uh, provokes the desire, um, blunts the performance. So it may be alcohol that's taking the edge off his dick. Maybe alcohol that's prompting him to last longer. I do have to question though. You say 20, 30 minutes. Is that 20, 30 minutes of intercourse that is now becoming an hour of just pounding away at you with a rock-hard cock? Aren't you lucky? According to Wikipedia, Masters and Johnson found that men took approximately four minutes to reach orgasm with their partners after commencing 
penis and vagina intercourse, women took approximately 10 to 20 minutes to reach orgasm with their partners, but women took just four minutes to reach orgasm when they masturbated. Yikes. This is a sign, of course, that uh, women should either have one partner after another. They need five partners who will fuck them for four minutes each till they get to that 20 minutes and they have an orgasm or women need to masturbate during intercourse. They need to, you need to treat your male partner like a great big hairy, sweaty, inflatable sex toy that you masturbate with and on, that you touch yourself, you incorporate masturbation into the intercourse or you won't come. Anyway, anybody else who've had this experience with Red Bull or with vodka or with both is welcome to call in and uh, share. Hey, Dan. This is a queer guy in Virginia with a question about negotiated openness and honesty. Uh, I have been with my boyfriend for almost a year now. Uh, since we initiated the relationship, I indicated that I really did was fine with some measure of negotiated infidelity as long as we communicated beforehand. However, uh, my boyfriend has now broken that agreement several times, only telling me about these things afterwards. Uh, and every time there's a promise, it will get better. Things will be okay. He will always tell me in the future, and then it doesn't happen. And we're just coming back from the latest round of that, and things are supposedly changed. But now he's begging to go out this Saturday without my presence to the number one hookup town, spot in town, and just says it's to have fun with friends and nothing else. And I'm just hurt and tired of being lied to, and I really want to know if some people are just not capable of honesty or dis uh, or disclosure. I really love him. I would love for things to work out. When things are great, they're great. It's just I can't handle lying anymore, and I need to know whether or not it should be done. And you, this would probably dump the motherfucker already question. So thanks a lot. You call it negotiated infidelity. I think infidelity is kind of a pejorative. It implies that there is cheating. When this works, it's not negotiated adultery, not negotiated infidelity. It's negotiated openness, negotiated safety uh, in the context of a lot of gay relationships, it might be called. Um, here's what I'm curious about. When Sometimes when people say, you know, it's OK for you to have sex with other people, it's OK for me to have sex with other people, but you have to tell me in advance – they will then turn around and I'm not saying that this is what you've done. I'm just curious if this could be what you've done. Um, they will – you know, when the partner comes and said, I'd like to do this. I'm going to make a date at this time in this place to fuck this other person. Then the partner that was just disclosed to has a big meltdown, pouts, sulks, has a jealous fit really. Um, when the, the date time approaches of their partner getting it off with someone else, they're inconsolable and it makes it difficult for the person who believes that they have – they're in an open relationship and they have permission. They have an allowance to go out there and do something else. It makes, them, it makes it impossible for them to actually enjoy it because they don't want to hurt you and they don't want you to be devastated at home alone having a big sad uh, that makes it impossible for them to get an erection with somebody else. So that can create you know, a disincentive for the discloser if the disclosee is having – a conniption fit every time there's the disclosure that they said was the price that you had to pay to actually have this as a part of our relationship. Not saying that that's what you've done, but I've seen other people do that. You know, we have an open relationship and everything's fine and my only condition, the only rule is he has to tell me in advance and then I have a big freak out, meltdown, sulk, scream, cry when he, you know, wants to go do it or she wants to go do it. I'm a basket case. What do I do? You know what you, know what you do if you want to have that open relationship? You don't disclose in advance. You don't make that a condition if it's going to wreck you. 
you do an after-the-fact disclosure. But uh, it sounds perhaps in this case there weren't after-the-fact disclosures. There were after-the-fact discoveries that you were finding out that he'd been with other people. So you need to have a chat with him. You need to find out what exactly is the problem here. The other thing that could be going on and I only tossed this out as an example because I saw it in the lives of uh, a couple of friends of mine who were in a relationship where the you know it was an open relationship. They had the same sort of agreement that you and your partner have or boyfriend have right now. That you can do something with somebody else, you just have to tell me in advance. And he didn't tell in advance and he kept getting caught and kept getting upset and they really like dug down and burrowed into it to figure out what the whole fucking issue was and what it was for my friend who was you know, the not disclosing and in trouble dude was that he had always sort of fetishized his secret life when he was closeted, before he was coming out, that part of the thrill for him was the doing things that nobody knew about, the getting away with it the having these sexual secrets and disclosing in advance made it impossible for him those sexual secrets. That part of the reason he wanted to be in an open relationship was to have this sort of other life and these experiences that were his alone and made him feel naughty and you know people would look at him and not know, including his boyfriend. And they were able to accommodate each other. They were able to work it out uh, by Allowing for that by the the one partner saying, okay, you don't have to disclose in advance. Every once in a while we're going to go out. We're going to have a few drinks and we're going to have a sort of disclosure fest about everything that's been going on. Um, you know, the, the, the assignations that you've had that I don't know about, you can tell me about. And I won't be mad and we won't retaliate and it won't be a sad thing. It will be a what have you been up to naughty boy kind of talk. And it worked and they're still together and they're happy. And my friend can have his sort of secret life and his dalliances that are his alone for a while and his boyfriend has the disclosure. He just doesn't have it in advance. He has it after the fact. But he still gets it. So he knows where he stands. He knows how much is going on. He knows what's up. And the secret keeping fetishist, he gets to keep his secrets for three months or six months or however long the intervals are between their disclosure drinkathon sessions. So maybe that would work for you guys. But if he's doing this impulsively, if he's being unsafe, if he is lying to you, repeatedly, if you weren't a basket case when he disclosed in advance, if indeed he ever did, if the issue for him isn't this like fetishization of the secret private life, if the issue for him is just impulse control and dishonesty, those are really bad signs for the future of your relationship. Impulse control problems, dishonesty problems, they are a cancer that will rot the relationship and kill it. So you need to figure out what exactly is going on with him and whether you have a future together with him. Hi, Dan. I'm calling to ask a question about confronting someone about sex addiction. I recently hooked up with a guy using a Craigslist Casual Encounters ad, and because I am single and haven't had sex in a really long time and just needed to get a little bit of release, and I happened to meet this guy who was actually really cool and cute and we met up and things went really well and I was kind of curious to like maybe meet this guy again even for not just for sex um but I was a little bit concerned because I happened to notice that this guy posts really frequently on the casual encounters website and I don't know him very well at all but it just kind of made me feel a little bit bad for him because I think that, you know, he's a cute guy and seemed pretty normal. And so I 
just can't understand why he couldn't, like, date someone, like, normally, why he would be seeking out so much interaction through casual encounters. And so my question is, given the fact that I don't know this guy very well, is it okay to ask about whether or not he's a sex addict? Not trying to judge the behavior uh, or anything, but just out of curiosity and maybe even a little bit of concern for this person and whether or not you think it's a good idea for, even though we don't know each other very well and we only have this kind of one interaction, whether or not I should act on my concern for this person, if it's a good idea to um, even bother getting involved. The first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to refer you to an article written by uh, someone who's been a guest on the program, someone whose work I admire, Dr. Marty Klein, wrote a piece for The Humanist. It was in the July-August 2012 issue called You're Addicted to What? Challenging the Myth of Sex Addiction. You might want to go read that before you throw the sex addict and sex addiction labels, terms, pathology around. Moving on, rarely when I take a call do I have this desire to reach through the ether and the cables and just slap somebody. But I really wanted to slap you, caller, because what you're basically saying is I did this thing. This other guy did the exact same thing. I'm fine. He's an addict. I was looking for casual sex. He was looking for casual sex. I went to a place where people who are looking for casual sex go to find other people looking for casual sex. And then I went back there and found that he was still looking for casual sex or was looking for a lot or posting a lot of ads. And so clearly this thing that I did that I enjoyed and I am able to be moderate about, he wants more casual sex than I want casual sex. So he's an addict. He's sick. He needs help. There needs to be an intervention. What can I do to save him from his own dick? You can back the fuck off. And you can recognize that there's a reason why in Craigslist or casual encounters or wherever else people go looking for casual sex or friends with benefits, guys post ads more often than women. Let's think about it for a second. A woman posts an ad looking for casual sex or something like Craigslist, casual, and will get for one ad, a thousand responses. A guy posts a thousand ads and he'll get one response. There's a reason why he may be posting more frequently. He is probably getting a lot fewer responses than you get. There is a supply and demand imbalance out there in the casual sex-seeking world. Women who are seeking casual sex are a lot rarer. There are fewer of them on the ground. There are fewer of them on Craigslist casual encounters than there are men. So the men work harder. The men post more often. Sorry, your, your call frustrated me because all I was getting from you was a lot of slut shaming that you probably are against slut shaming. You're probably liberal and progressives and sex positive and you're against slut shaming in principle. But here in, in action, you are engaged in a kind of slut shaming. This guy who you met seeking casual sex is having casual sex. And that doesn't make him a sex addict. There's no such thing as a sex addict, A, but that doesn't make him an addict. That doesn't mean that he has a problem. That doesn't mean that he needs your help. Yes, he's good looking. Yes, he could have a relationship, but right now he's not interested in a relationship. And you know what? Neither were you when you went into the casual encounters section looking for something casual. If you're interested in dating him, Go ahead and date him. If you're interested in hooking up with him again, go ahead and say that. 
if you date him, if you guys become semi-regular, if you become exclusive and he's still posting to casual encounters, then you have a problem. But right now, A, it's none of your business. B, you're misreading why a guy might post more often to a site like Craigslist Casual Encounters than a woman. And C, you're engaged in a little hypocritical projection here. I did exactly what you did. I'm fine. You are a sex addict. That's kind of shitty. Knock it off. You remind me of those people. You remind me of guys who say, oh, I would never, I would never date that girl. You know, we, we hooked up. We had sex. Where after we met? She's not dateable. And you look, I look at those guys, the straight guys, and say, she did exactly what you're doing. Are you dateable? You're saying she's not dateable because she did what you did. And so obviously you don't think you're undateable because you intend to date other people. How is she disqualified from being a dateable person? For doing that, I, I've had that problem with some gay guys I know. Oh, we, you know, we met in a bathhouse. I would never date a guy I met in a bathhouse because he goes to bathhouses, and I look at them and say, "You go to bathhouses. You can't meet guys in bathhouses if you aren't going to bathhouses too." Hello, you're not undateable. You can't assume that all other guys in bathhouses are not dateable. It's a crazy sort of sex-negative projection. And it's a hypocrisy. I hooked up and I'm fine, but you hooked up, you're a slut. I went to a bathhouse, but I'm dateable, but you went to a bathhouse, but you're obviously a crazy sex monster who is not fit for dating or meeting my mother. I went to casual encounters and had a casual encounter and I'm fine. He goes to casual encounters and looks for casual encounters. He's a sex addict. Do you see the problem here with that kind of reasoning? Hello, Dan. I'm a 20... 20- a uh, 29-year-old woman in a three-year strong relationship with a man headed for marriage within the next year. Yay! Seriously, great guy, great relationship. I recently let my fiancé know how very interested I am in both of us having sex with another woman, and he seemed very open to the idea. Within a couple of days of that conversation, he brought it up again and suggested that maybe the best person to approach about this would be his ex-girlfriend. She had expressed attraction for me while they were dating, and when she broke up with him, she suggested that he and I would make a better match than she and him. So that's a little fucked up, but it turned out to be true. Yeah, actually, turned out great. Uh, Also important to know, probably, his ex and I are still friends, and there's no ill will between us, and um, they don't talk, but, you know, they ended peaceably. And I, you know, definitely attracted to her. Is this a good idea? Seriously, should I ask her if she's interested in a night of fun with her ex and me? Am I being naive, thinking this is possible? Do you think my boyfriend is just trying to hook up with his ex? Side note, this would also be my first sexual experience of any kind with a woman. So anyway, love your thoughts. So what we have here is a known quantity who wishes you well, who uh, your boyfriend was with previously, who looked at you and told him at the time that you were a better partner for him than she was, who made a graceful exit and has maintained over the course of your relationship with her ex-boyfriend a completely friendly rapport with you. Um, Is she a bad choice for that one-off? No, she sounds fucking ideal. Is this just your boyfriend trying to get into his ex-girlfriend's pants one more time? Probably. Is that so wrong? He was with her for a while because he was physically attracted to her, sexually attracted to her. He's with you because he is physically and sexually and emotionally attracted to you. 
she didn't work for him the same way you work for him, but he enjoyed her and might like another spin. And isn't that what the third in a situation is for? Is that it's going to be somebody that you're attracted to, somebody that he's attracted to, somebody that he wants to get with, someone that you want to get with. He wanted to get with her once before. Of course he wants to get with her again. It doesn't sound like he wants to run off with her. He ran away from her to you. So be confident that you're the one he's with because you are indeed the one he's with. You're the one that she wanted him with. So she's not going to be angling to steal him from you potentially. All that said, there are no risk-free options in a case like this. You can go with a known quantity. You can go with an X, which I recommend and have recommended and have done myself in my relationship. Worked just fine. Or you can go with a complete stranger. But you could wind up with a bunny boiler in your house. You could wind up with somebody who's unknown, uh, you know, who seems charming, who seems nice, who seems like they respect your relationship, who's just, you know, a weasel who comes in throwing elbows and creating drama and conflict and outs you all about this or does some other pull some other asshole move or breaks into your house and boils your money after the fact. So you can't know with you know the magic unicorn completely safe and completely unknown to us and in no way a threat whatsoever and going to disappear immediately after. You can't know that person's not going to create chaos in your lives and you can't ultimately know that jumping back into bed with his ex won't create chaos in your lives. But she sounds like a much lower risk for chaos. You have a friendly relationship. You're attracted to her. You're on good terms. She put – she gave her stamp of approval to your relationship as she exited her relationship with your boyfriend, her ex-boyfriend, there's a rapport there. Oh my god, it sounds ideal. Go – the two of you, go – turn off your – turn off the podcast, give her a call and go fuck all three of you right now. Just go do it. You have my blessing, no guarantees, but you do have my blessing. And I think as they say, the Hunger Games movies and books, may the odds ever be in your favor. I actually think the odds here are definitely in your favor. Go for it. Hi, Dan. Hi, Takes Every at Risk Youth. Um, I'm calling because I have a problem with my boyfriend. The deal is his parents, I think, treat him very abusively. Um, they call him names. They emotionally belittle and humiliate him. They deny him medical care that he needs because they say that they don't think he really needs it or he should be able to get over it. He has very low self-esteem and believes that he deserves to be treated this way. I think because he doesn't want to believe that his parents aren't treating him right, so he would rather believe that he deserves it. But this leads to us fighting when I try to explain to him that that's not an okay way for someone to behave to their child. I know they're his parents, and I try to butt out of the situation. But it hurts me to see him hating himself so much when he's such a great person. So I don't know what to do. Can you break up with someone because they're mean to themselves but not to you? Should you break up with someone for that reason? It's gotten to the point where I love everything about him, but it's stressing me out to contemplate that his perception of himself won't change or that I might have to have these people in my life if I continue to see him seriously. But I love him so much. I feel like this is worth fighting for. I'm really confused. You can break up with someone for any reason. A relationship is always opt-in. And if being with him means being with you know, abusive in-laws or abusive parents or being around as abusive parents and having to witness the abuse and when you speak to him about it, having to listen to him take his parents' side and justify the abuse that he is being subjected to, 
that could all be so emotionally traumatizing for you because you're, you know, what you're doing in a relationship is making an emotional investment in someone, um, hopefully looking out for their best and wanting the best for them. And if you can't help him get what's best for him because he's so damaged by the abuse that he's been subjected to over the years, that would be endlessly frustrating for you potentially. And that is grounds to end a relationship. It is sad grounds to end a relationship with somebody who is otherwise charming and lovely and who you, you like very much. But not every relationship ends you know, in a fit of self-righteous indignation because you were done wrong. Some relationships end because of circumstances beyond your control or your partner's control just make the relationship continuing impossible emotionally, sexually, romantically for whatever reason and you have a right to make that judgment call and pull out. If being with him makes you unhappier than not, you know, you're with somebody because you want a certain degree of romantic and sexual happiness and you know, life brings chaos, life brings drama, people are a mixture of good and bad traits. There's no, you know, a relationship is not a morphine drip. You're not going to be ecstatic and blissed out all the time, but you want to be with somebody who <laughs> brings you more ecstasy and bliss than the opposites. That said, all that said, if he is a minor and he is being denied medical care that he needs by his parents as a form of abuse, and, and that's just one aspect of <laughs> form of abuse, you should call Child Protective Services if you have witnessed this abuse and this denial of medical care, needed medical care. And you should detail in an anonymous call and you do not have to give your name. You don't have to say how you know. They will respect your privacy. You should detail what it is you've seen, what it is that's going on in his house, what's being done to him by his parents and let CPS intervene because if he's a minor and he's being abused and he's being denied medical care by crazy abusive parents, the authorities should be alerted. And God, there's a just a heartbreaking photo. Um, that I would jump on Google and look up right now but I don't need to see it again of a child being taken from a home, an abusive home with a, clearly a broken arm and being carried away by CPS, by social workers, by the authorities and this child is seven or eight, nine years old, is crying and reaching back to her parents with her broken arm, with both arms, one of them broken. That's Part of what's so tragic and heartbreaking and mindfucky about an abusive relationship, about abusive parents is that kids will cling to and love their parents despite their parents' failure, despite their parents' maliciousness, sadism, their abusiveness because really the parents are all the kid knows and that world, that world of abuse may be all that kid knows. So it can be terrifying for a child, even an older child, even a teenager to feel like something may disrupt – his family life, that something may come between him and his parents, that a lot of abused kids grow up to believe that they, as your boyfriend has indicated, that they deserve the abuse, that they've invited it, that it isn't that their parents are evil or abusive or inadequate but that they are somehow inadequate and a disappointment and in need of this kind of control, abuse, correction. Otherwise, how could these people, my parents who love me and at times are probably very kind to me in other ways, how could they be doing this to me? It must be me. That kid in that photograph with the broken arm, despite the trauma of that moment, 
has to be better out of that house? Your boyfriend, should you call CPS and should there be an intervention? Should there be an assessment and an intervention that removes him from that house at least temporarily? However traumatic that parting might be, however traumatic the intervention might be, he will ultimately be the better for it as well. So if that's the case, minor child abuse, medical neglect, please make the call. Hi, Dan. I have a question about your uh, views on cheating in a marriage or a long-term relationship. I understand that you believe that cheating is okay in some circumstances if the other partner is not able to satisfy, if the sexless partner is unable to satisfy the sex-wanting partner and they've tried everything and they're still unable to come to any sort of resolution, in that case, it's okay to step outside of the relationship and cheat in order to keep your sanity and save the relationship because you guys have kids or you love each other, but this one aspect is lacking. Um, I very poorly explained this to my friend that I believe cheating is okay in certain circumstances. And I didn't explain myself well, granted, but he said that he was really disappointed in me. And I tried going into it a little bit. And again, I did not give a very good example, but he just had this look on his face where he thought I was crazy. And then he didn't want to see me for the rest of the night. And I'm just wondering what I should do about this situation. Uh, I feel like I should go back and explain myself better, but at what point do I stop? If he's judging me, and I feel like a lot of people will have this issue that if I bring this up again in a different scenario, people will give me funny looks and, and judge me. Is this even worth bringing up to someone that I'm not in a relationship with? Should I just go with the mainstream and continue to say that cheating is never, ever, ever okay to avoid this kind of dilemma? Or should I speak up and and risk being judged? And is there any point in explaining myself to someone who I know is never going to change their mind? Um, This particular friend is a wonderful person, but he's very stubborn, and I just don't think any kind of explanation on my part would change his views on cheating. So in that case, is it worth it to go and explain myself more thoroughly, or should I just leave it alone? You could go back and explain it all to him again, perhaps, or you could buy him my book. There's a reason I titled the chapter on this very subject, Cheating is Always Wrong Except When It Isn't. And in that chapter of American Savage, I unpack circumstances that even people who are, you know, the cheating is always wrong, table pounders, when you lay them out in front of them, they go, yeah, I guess in this particular circumstance, maybe cheating was the least worst option. Sometimes people want to, you know, they hear somebody say cheating is okay in some particular circumstance and all they hear is cheating is okay. They don't hear some particular circumstance. Uh, And some if you say cheating is okay when there's a libido mismatch, which is not something I've actually said. I think people should find a partner who's relatively close together in libido. And what you get is people say, oh, so if some guy is with somebody who only wants to have sex one day a week and he wants sex every day, it's okay for him to cheat six days a week on his partner with six different women. No, no one is saying that. But there are circumstances in which uh, you know a marriage, a long-term relationship – 
the sexual passion is gone. The sex is gone. It's a partnership. There may be love. There may be affection. There are kids. Maybe one partner is economically dependent on the other. Maybe one partner is chronically ill and dependent for their health care and their health insurance on the other partner. And it's just not about sex anymore. And you look at that functional, functioning, loving, imperfect relationship and one person hasn't had sex for 10, 15 years. These are examples that are in my book. And the right thing to do is to tell the person who hasn't had sex in 10, 15 years that if they must have sex again, if they just can't go without for the rest of their lives, that the only ethical thing to do is to divorce your partner who is economically dependent on you perhaps or dependent on you for health insurance, traumatize your children, tear your lives apart. Often in the case of divorce, set both parties back economically, perhaps cripple them economically. I look at that and I say, you know what? That's a circumstance. That's a case where cheating is the least worst option. We're better to cheat and stay. Do what you need to do to stay sane and stay married. And that there is a commitment above and beyond. There's a loyalty perhaps higher than a sexual loyalty, particularly in a relationship where that isn't about sex anymore, where there isn't sex anymore, where you're not cheating your partner out of anything that they want or value because you do are not sexual. In those circumstances, it's really hard for even someone who mouths the cheating is always wrong mantra to argue against cheating, quote unquote, in that case. But what do you do with your friends? What do you do? It's not up to you to go out there and, and argue these things. I'll do it. I do it all the time. I wrote a chapter in my fucking book about it. And you can order 30 copies and keep them on hand with a post-it note on that page uh, to the, the beginning of that chapter. And when cheating comes up, you can hand someone the book and tell them you'll be back in 15 minutes when they're done reading that particular chapter. You don't have to win the argument. It's actually kind of an argument you can't win because the mass sort of cultural – Psychosis around monogamy requires everyone to say cheating is always wrong. Even people who don't believe it are required to say it because we all it's we all have to believe. I guess cheating is the other Tinkerbell. Dicks are the big Tinkerbells in the room, and monogamy and infidelity is the other Tinkerbell. We all have to believe that it's always wrong, even though we all know that there's an asterisk at the end and there are circumstances under which it ain't always wrong. And it's easy for people who are not yet in long-term, multi-decade committed relationships to be glib about this subject. Circle back to me 30 years into a relationship when your partner is chronic – when you are chronically ill, when you are bedridden and tell me you would rather have your partner divorce you than cheat on you. You would rather be left. You'd rather be abandoned than cheated on. That if it really came down to that, your partner was going to go, leave you, or they were going to fuck somebody else and stay. You wouldn't rather they fuck someone else and stay. Anyway, American Savage, coming out in paperback soon. Got a chapter on this. It'll uh, arm you with arguments. And uh, if that doesn't work, just keep a crate under your bed and slap people upside the head with a copy of the book when you need be. Hi, Dan. My husband and I live in the United States and are in a relationship with a woman who lives in England. She'd like to take a relationship to the next level and move to the States to be with us. We understand that immigration laws would make this difficult, even if this were a binary, monogamous relationship, but we worry that it may be impossible for us to pull this off in this circumstance. Do you know of any resources for polyamorous 
uh, couples and groups trying to navigate the immigration laws or any lawyers that specialize in this thing or anything else? Do I know any lawyers who specialize in this? Have I got a lawyer for you? Diana Adams has a law firm in New York City where she serves mostly queer and non-traditional families. She's a law school professor teaching LGBTQ family law, and she advocates nationally for same-sex marriage, legal support for couples who prefer not to marry and gay parents. She's also openly queer and polyamorous and has done media about her poly life, most recently The View. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us today, Diana. Thank you, Dan. I'm glad to be here. So there was a lot of talk in the run-up to the DOMA decision uh, in the Supreme Court about binational gay couples um, and the the predicament that they were in because uh, DOMA prevented the federal government from recognizing the same-sex partners of American citizens. They couldn't sponsor them for citizenship. And there were these you know, marriage exiles, gay men who'd fallen in love with you know, people who lived in other countries who had to leave the United States and go live with their partners somewhere else. How common is this to polyamorous triads, quads, where there's – in the same way that it used to be for gay couples because the DOMA decision fixed this for us, where there's, you know, one-third of a polytriad stranded in England? That's a great question. I haven't seen many polytriads with this particular immigration issue, but there are many different ways that families such as polyamorous triads get left out of the marriage protections that we have. Marriage has conferred so many benefits, the health insurance, tax benefits, and immigration benefits that we heard so much about mm-hmm. in the run-up to the Windsor decision. And that was really the big argument about why equal protection would warrant extending marriage to any couple. And it was really about all of those thousand different rights and privileges that come with marriage. And unfortunately, only fewer than half of American adults are married and many other kinds of families aren't getting those protections at all. So the short answer for the caller is that no, there isn't any, any immigration support that they can get for that third person in a triad based on their relationship. Um, so I think their best bet might be to support her with finding an employment visa, which, of course, is very difficult. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen this particular situation come up very often before, but I have seen many other kinds of situations related to parenting, relating to try to figure out how to share finances or how to share health insurance. And one of my roles as a queer lawyer is to really support families in creatively using the legal system's tools to figure out ways to meet their needs and to make sure that their family has the stability that they need. Can I just interject here before we even go on another minute that I think it is appalling and a human rights violation that for so many people, their ability to access health care, their ability to have health insurance hinges upon whether or not they're fucking somebody who has health care and health insurance, that we, that we do not enjoy health care as a right in this country the way the citizens of almost all Western, other Western industrialized nations do, that we've bundled it with employment, we've bundled it with, in, into marriage as opposed to each of us having health care as, as, as a birthright. And then whether you're married or not or single or not or polytriaded or not, you have health insurance. You don't look to marriage to provide you with that. It's just it's actually kind of appalling and coercive. It forces some people to get married who do not want to marry. It forces some people to stay married who would rather divorce. All that said, absolutely. What's the workaround again here for 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 this kind of couple or this kind of triad, this kind of situation? Where well, in this kind of situation, I would often try to figure out ways that they can get support that's not based on their relationship. Which, as you're saying, is ultimately what we want. We would like for each person to be able to be uh, judged for their taxes, judge whether they get health insurance or not, just based on them being a citizen, them being a person, and not based on who they're having sex with and whether they're in one of the types of sanctioned romantic relationships. And now, fortunately, same-sex couples are in a sanctioned romantic relationship, but lots of other people are not. Mm -hmm. Single people are not, and are not getting all of these benefits. So 
as I said, for this for this child, unfortunately, it might be looking into employment and trying to figure out ways to support her with getting the employment visa she needs. That might even mean going getting a degree that would supporting her with that so that mm-hmm. she could get the right kind of job. Other kinds of ways of supporting poly triads with workarounds might be something like creating an LLC. I sometimes will help a polyamorous triad wait, wait. to uh, for, pool their for, assets. Uh, for the folks out there who don't know what an LLC is, what is an LLC? An LLC is a limited liability corporation. So it's basically a basic business entity. Mm-hmm. And it's a basic business entity that allows you to pool your resources the same way people in a business together might be able to buy a common health insurance plan or buy a building. This is a way that people could share their finances that doesn't ask questions about whether they're having sex with each other. This could be three brothers. This could be three people or business partners, or this could be three lovers in a polyamorous triad. And I think what we'll be seeing more and more of is people being able to create legal partnerships that are not based on whether they're in a romantic relationship. And I think that same-sex marriage was one of the very powerful steps down the road of supporting other kinds of families and other Americans getting these basic rights and needs met. But there are other steps further. And I think that includes supporting a lot of the institutions of domestic partnership that really cropped up in response to the fact that same-sex couples couldn't get married and then ended up getting used in really creative ways We've mm-hmm. seen a lot of elderly widows who are just platonic friends, like the Golden Girls, going and getting domestic partnerships so that they could share health insurance or oh, they could no. share some basic protection. Now I'm picturing the Golden Girls as a TV sitcom about a polyamorous quad, and it's kind of freaking me out. Right, absolutely. Well, I would love to be the, the lawyer on there helping them negotiate, <laughs> uh, you know, whether you could use one of their pension plans to take somebody else on a date. This, this, um, this reminds me of one of the workarounds that gay couples used to, to use back in the really bad old days where guys would adopt their boyfriends, would do a legal adoption. Right. The, the slightly older couple, maybe just two, three, four, five years older, seven, ten years older, would adopt the younger partner so that they were their next of kin, so they could inherit their properties, so that they were related legally. And people would be appalled by this. Oh, my God, it's an incestuous relationship. Well, if they could have gotten married, they wouldn't be in this technically incestuous adoptive relationship. And so what you're saying is you can use corporate law to confer on a polyamorous triad – um, you know, that would make you know take this romantic attachment and allow it to function in the world a little bit to to secure some of the rights that might come with a domestic partner thing or or, or plural marriage for this couple by sort of running off with corporate law and forming a corporation in the same way some same sex couples used to use adoption law to protect themselves. Absolutely. So we're seeing these kind of creative workarounds and adoption really did function in a similar way. We're also seeing people make family agreements by contract, um, out of court, making their own kinds of agreements, any kind of financial agreement, just like two business partners might make a financial agreement. But that's not going to get their partner immigration rights or a green card or residency. Unfortunately not. Unfortunately not, because marriage has been so incentivized uh, by the government. Um, and we've seen so much of that incentivization with immigration, um, with the tax benefits, that you'll only really get from marriage at this point. And the goal of that, in terms of public policy, was stability. There was this idea that because people who are uh, married statistically might be doing better financially than couples that are not married, that if people magically got married, they would become financially solvent people. So with TANA, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, in the 90s, we saw welfare reform pushing single people to get married as if that was the solution. 
And that created all of these classes to encourage people to make them more marriageable, um, to try to lift people out of poverty, because marriage has really been intended to function as a social welfare state of two, where these two people will support each other um, as a legal unit. If one of you gets $50,000 of credit card debt, you're splitting it. If one of you makes a lot of money, you're splitting it. And that's really a way that the government can privatize support so they don't have to take responsibility for providing health insurance and they don't have to take responsibility for providing for single moms. The way that that functioned was really in the 90s that women would go into a welfare office and say, as single mothers, the largest group of people in poverty in this country, I need help to support myself and my children. And the government was saying, we are going to encourage you to get into a sexual relationship with a man who will support you in order to get all of those benefits met so we don't have to do it, which is essentially the government being a pimp to poor women in America, which is one of the real problems with connecting romantic relationships with financial dependency the way that we do so incessantly with marriage. There's another workaround that's kind of depressing, but for reals, you know, you have this couple in the United States who are married. They have this other partner who is in England who cannot immigrate, who cannot get residency, cannot get a green card because the relationship isn't recognized. The couple in the United States does have the option of divorcing and the man in the couple marrying – or the woman in the couple marrying the partner in England and getting her here that way. There is absolutely that option and that's an option that I was reluctant to mention because it would be considered immigration fraud technically. So I don't want to be advocating well, to, wait, wait. to do that. How would However, that wait, why, would that, why would that be immigration fraud? Well, marriages for the purpose of immigration, although they happen all the time, um, are, would be considered a marriage that is for the purposes of you know, the immigration, even if you're in a, a romantic relationship. So they're going to go through a whole process of asking about that. This is really different than mm-hmm. people who don't know each other very well or who are not in a romantic relationship saying, okay, I'm going to pay you to do this. And then they're going to ask questions about, you know, where does this person's sock drawer? And when they get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and the immigration interview is that they're trying to figure out if you're really a couple and you're going to have to figure that out or lie. I, I, I've always loved those questions because they really are a couple. They really are in a relationship. So I think that, that that could be a legitimate way to handle this. And then in actuality, that's probably what they would end up doing. I actually, with Terry one day, downloaded some of those immigration questions that they put to people to, to, to investigate whether they're marrying fraudulently for immigration purposes. And we laughed because we've been together forever. And I don't know half the shit they were asking uh, that, that people should expect to know at the beginning of their relationship, really. I couldn't answer half the questions about Terry and I've lived with that bad forever. Um, is there a website or someplace people can go to learn more about the legal rights or the legal vulnerabilities of polyamorous couples? Or polyamorous triads, My quads, web- quints? Absolutely. Um, my website, dianaadamslaw.net, I'm constantly adding more resources and more articles about polyamorous families. I post a lot about this on Facebook and Twitter. And then also I'm part of a group called Open Love NY, which is the New York area poly group. That organization has resources as well as the national poly group Loving More. What's your handle on Twitter? Um, Diana Adams ESQ. Thanks so much for jumping on the phone with us today, Diana. That was really informative. Great. Thank you so much, Dan. Good luck, everyone. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old female living in Southern California, and my question is about some very delicate situations that have arisen with my younger female family members, namely my two half-sisters and my cousin. Of the three of them, one of them was, well, my youngest half-sister who I grew up with, she was brutally gang-raped in a park, which turned out to be true, and then the other two claimed they were raped by 
step parents and, you know, the big difference between them, why I think the other two are lying is because they didn't have any of that shame or that guilt or that, that like self-hatred that you get when you let something like that happen to you or, you know, you kind of feel guilty and it's not your fault, but you feel like it is. And, but I also feel like, what if it is true? And what if I'm just slut shaming them? So I'm the oldest female relative that is not over the age of 40. And, um, you know, I'm like, I'm the cool person who moved away and I just don't know uh, if I should reach out to them or I, I don't know. I'm just I'm very uh, confused about how to behave around them or how to treat them or whether to believe them or not. It sounds like your heart is in the right place, but your head is in an ass place, like an up your ass place. Um, I don't want to come down too hard on you, but holy Christ, you don't know whether to believe them or not as if it's up to you. Uh, your one relative was brutally gang raped and it turned out to be true, you say. You question why they would, might let something like that happen to you. And you know, if you let something like that happen to you, then you're going to be paralyzed by guilt and shame in the wake of having been sexually violated or abused or raped as if that's something that someone who is the victim of sexual violence allows to happen to them. I'm sure you don't believe these things. I'm sure you will be – I hope you will be as shocked to hear me repeat back to you the things that you actually said as I was to hear them initially. Uh, if they want to reach out to you, they will. If you're the cool older relative who moved away and you are accessible to them on social media or at family events and they feel the need to reach out to someone who is a part of their families but removed at some distance that makes you a safe confident, they will. I'm not sure that they should. However, reach out to you that, that you ground your doubts in uh, the claims of, of two of your relatives that they were sexually abused in their demeanor in the wake of the abuse, that they just don't seem sad enough, that they just don't seem shamed enough, guilty enough, that they're not walking around every day under a rain cloud cutting themselves and sobbing isn't helpful. It's actually a really destructive attitude, you know? You don't have to be destroyed forever to be believed about being raped or sexually abused or sexually assaulted or the victim of any some sort of sexual trauma. We don't want to put it out there. We don't want to emphasize to people that victimhood is something that they have to perform and it has to be an Oscar quality performance or they will not be believed. It actually can contribute to the harm done to someone who's been raped or sexually violated if everyone is standing around with their arms folded across their checks, scrutinizing them for proof in their moods and behaviors. We don't want to tell people that the price of being believed is being utterly psychologically destroyed for the rest of your life because then we magnify the harm done. When you tell people that this is something you cannot ever recover from, people are less likely to ever recover from it. And the fact is people can and do. People are resilient, that there are plenty of people walking around, male and female, mostly female, also men who have been sexually traumatized, raped, abused, who are happy, healthy, centered, grounded, fine, who survived and thrived. And we don't get to stand around those people going, yeah, maybe you weren't. Maybe that didn't happen. It couldn't have happened because if it did happen – you wouldn't be smiling ever. You wouldn't be having fun ever. 
That's a really bullshitty attitude to take. So I would back off. Let them come to you. If they need an older, I'm not going to say wiser, if they need an older confidant in the family, let them come to you. In the meantime, educate yourself about this. If you really want to be a resource to any women in your family, any girls in your family, any friends in your network who've suffered sexual trauma, you need to learn more about it in the interim before somebody comes to you because some of your attitudes, some of your ideas are a little off and if you express them to a victim of sexual trauma, abuse, rape, could be damaging. Hi, Dan. I am a 28-year-old woman, straight woman, East Coast. Um, I'm calling, actually, I'm wondering when is it time, when, when do you have to start telling your significant other about personal issues in your life? For example, I'm going through a bit of a um, financial rough patch. Um, I re- recently divorced somewhat recently divorced and just kind of dealing with the financial issues that have come along with that and um, have some marks on my credit and subsequently had to get a new car and have my best friend co-sign for me. So the car is actually in her name, but I'm wondering you know, my boyfriend's been asking some questions about the card and, like, different things about it. And I'm wondering, like, do I have to explain to him that my friend co-signed? Do I have to tell him that I'm going through, you know, some rocky patches financially? Like, when when do you have to start opening up about those things? Because I know I'm going to get my registration sticker and things, or if he happened to see some paperwork and saw her name on it, like... Am I obligated to explain my issues to him at this point? We've been together about eight months now. Um, and he's an open book to me, but it seems like he's got his shit together a little more than I do. So I'm just, I'm just curious. Like, is it okay for me to tell him to make some excuse up of, I don't know, why the license plate tag is different than my birthday or why... You know, like, do I have to go into detail with them, basically? Kind of a weird, maybe dumb question, but I'd be interested in knowing your thoughts. If you have serious credit issues, uh, at nine months, at eight months, they're really none of his business. And he shouldn't be interrogating you about whether you own your car or your sofa or your bed or your dishes. just shouldn't matter. It shouldn't even be coming up. But you know that said, serious credit issues are something that you do need to disclose, the amount of student loan debt that you have, uh, your credit rating perhaps. If you're moving toward marriage, if you're moving towards merging your financial life with his, then he needs a reasonable picture of what that means and what that would entail and what the consequences could perhaps be for him. But at eight, nine months, none of his fucking business. Tell him to shut the fuck up. If he's asking questions about – your license plate, then I would question his sanity. Why are you looking at my license plate? Look at my ass. We just met. Hi, Ben. Um, First time calling into your show. Uh, I have a problem and I'm really not sure what to do. I'm a 26-year-old male from New York and I'm self-identified straight. Um, My problem is that 90% of the people that meet me think I'm gay 
and this has been getting worse and worse as well. Now I don't have a girlfriend anymore because, um, and I've been going out and trying to meet people. Uh, I was in one really long relationship throughout high school and college, and I was never really able to go out and pick up girls. But every time I go out, almost every single girl I talk to assumes that I'm gay, and I have no idea why. I feel like it's extremely hard to get a girl with this issue. Uh, I have no problem with gay people whatsoever. I'm friends with some of them. They're all awesome. Uh, I've asked some people what they think and what on the other think this way and answer. I have no problem. You know, it's really hard when I pick up a girl. And But it's, you know, like I said, I have no problem with gay people, but it's really hard when they assume I'm one. And I don't try to act it in any way. I've only physically or sexually been with three people all whom I was in a relationship with. And I'd like to increase that number and even, you know, have one night stand. But I feel like I just give out some, like, vibe that, you know, just says that I'm getting friends women off to me. And I've been to bars and women have come on to me and flirted with me heavily. And I'd get really excited and think this is awesome. But then they would ask me where my boyfriend was and then you try to introduce me to their guy friends. I really don't know what to do. My friends are surprised that my outgoing and positive personality should get me a lot of women. But I feel like it's holding me back and I have no idea how to stop people from thinking this way about me. I'm really frustrated. I would love any advice that you have. So I'm going to tell a little story. Uh, a couple of years ago, two, three years ago, uh, I was at the gym. Uh, the gym is a place I sometimes go. And you know, there were some hot guys at the gym who were working out together. They were really insanely hot and really built. And it was hard not to look. Um, I like to look. All through grade school and high school, I couldn't let myself look. And I would bruise my ocular muscles, whatever holds your eyes in place, uh, by not looking. And every fiber of my being is trying to twist my eyes in their sockets over to the hot guy and I wouldn't let them go. And after I came out, I just thought, you know what? I'm going to look at whatever the fuck I want to look at. But there were these two guys at the gym and I looked at them and they noticed me looking at them and I was like, holy shit, I got to stop looking at them. They are straight and they are going to kill me uh, because they are straight meatheads. They're just like hot muscly gym going straight guys. And I wasn't at the gay ish gym. I was at the straightish gym. Uh, and you know, they were there and they were there. And then I don't know, like a year and a half later, I noticed them, uh, at the other location of this same gym that I go to in Seattle, which is a little bit gayer. And they were there. And then, uh, one day online, I noticed the porn that they were making together. And guess what? They were gay guys. Not only are they gay guys, but they are gay married guys uh, married to each other, porn stars married to each other, which gives the lie to all those people who argue that marriage equality is something only old, boring, rich, gay, white men care about and it's not for the sex radicals and the sex workers and the prostitutes and the whores and here are these guys, sex workers, porn stars. Um, I don't think they do sex work, but they do porn, which is a kind of sex work, but they don't do escorting. Uh, here they are, married and porn stars and insanely beautiful. And you can verify that they actually exist and they're actually together because they are on Twitter. Seth Treston, XXX, and Billy Santoro, XXX, on Twitter. They were the guys, thought they were straight. I looked at them, felt like they were going to kill me. Turned out they were gay, which just goes to show that gaydar is not infallible. That sometimes even gay people look at other gay people, professionally gay gay people, people who have gay sex for a living, and they think, huh, straight guys. But they set off my my straight dar. I looked at them and thought straight, straight dar, picking up on the straight boys, which just goes to show that straight dar is not infallible. 
Some straight guys set off other people's gaydar. You are one of those straight guys. Sad for you. I guess. Uh, there are women out there who like uh, gayish guys. There are women out there who complain all the time that what they really want is a guy who's, you know, gay. They really want to marry their gay boyfriends. They really want to fuck a guy who's a little bit more ambiguous or a little bit, you know, less of a meathead, less of a straight dude. Uh, and there you are. Kind of gayish, the kind of straight guy who sets off people's gaydar in the same way that Seth and Billy set off my straight dar. You could scoop that pussy up. You really could. You just got to put yourself out there. You might want to enter some, believe it or not, and counterintuitively, some queer spaces where you're likely to meet bisexual women or even straight women who are into the whole sort of queer vibe. And a straight guy with a queer vibe is someone that they would be desperately attracted to. You'll have to fend off the advances of some gay and bi dudes and people will assume until you self-identify as straight in that space that you're probably gay because you're there. But once you're out and straight in a queerish space as a slightly queer vibing straight guy, you're going to get some pussy. I promise you. But you're going to have to be proactive about it and you're going to have to embrace who you are and how you come across. You can't run from who you are. Your voice sounds gay. Your voice sets off my gaydar. And that's not a bad thing. It's really not a bad thing. It'll attract a certain type of woman who is attracted to a certain type of man that you are the type, that you are that type that, that attracts that certain type of woman. You want to go with people who are into the person that you are and you want to market that aspect of yourself because wouldn't you rather have the shit fucked out of you by a woman who's into the kind of man that you are? Get thee to some queer spaces. You will meet those women. They are out there. Some of them are masculine women. Some of them are bi women. Some of them are trans women. They're out there and they are looking for guys just like you. Go find them. Hi, Dan. Uh, I am a queer pause guy in his mid-20s. And uh, I'm calling in response to uh, the girl who called in on your last show uh, with the friend who likes to let guys come inside of her. And I just have a bone to pick with you about the advice that you gave her. I mean, your advice basically boiled down to don't let guys come inside of you, which is fine advice, but is not sufficient advice in and of itself. You really should have let her know of like, PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, um, she should get on it if she continues doing this. Um, you also should have stressed the importance of communicating with partners about sexual practices, like letting people know, like, hey, I like to let guys come inside of me. If you, you want to come inside of me, it's like I'm fuck at your own risk. Like, it's really important. And I just think that, like, your advice in general on barebacking sucks, Dan. Like, just telling people not to do it isn't adequate. It's kind of like abstinence-only education, where, like, telling teenagers not to have sex, what does that lead to? More teen pregnancy. Telling people who like to bareback not to bareback, what does that lead to? More HIV infections. And in this case, since it's heterosex, we're talking about unwanted pregnancy, too. And you, I think you maybe mentioned birth control, but, like, this girl has got to be on birth control if she's going to continue doing this, like... I mean, you just have to, like, give people their options, Dan, because just telling people not to do something isn't going to cut it. Hey, Dan, I am calling in response to the question podcast 374 about the woman that called about a friend that wanted to be dumped, come dumped in by every guy that she ever met. And I'm 
calling to tell her that you should not do that because I was the same way all this past year. Happy New Year's to us. And granted, mine was associated with a little bit of a meth addiction, but I also wanted to be uh, ejaculated in by every single guy that I ever fucked. And um, for about 11 months out of the year, I avoided HIV and I got chlamydia a bunch of times and that's fine because you just take a pill, but I didn't get HIV until I went back for one more try. I wanted to have one more fun um, episode and I, of course, got HIV from it and now I have a really great boyfriend. I don't want to go back there and I don't want to do it. I don't want to be a come down, but I don't want to do any math or anything like that. But I'm just letting you know that those hot fantasies of having 10 guys come in you is really hot, but it's not worth it. So be safe, be careful, and fucking watch your ass. Hi, I am calling about episode 374, the Christmas Eve episode, in regards to the woman who uh, rather unreasonably refuses to give her husband blowjobs. But putting that aside, I think what the fellas need to stop doing is lying there like a dead fish, and they need to get into the action a little bit more. They need to learn how to receive the BJ. That entails playing with your lady's hair, telling her how hot and gorgeous she is, touching her, anything but just lying there with a dead fish. That really makes a difference uh, to me and whether I want to give one or not. And ladies, you can, through positive reinforcement, train your fella to be a better recipient. (laughs) Happy New Year. And we're going to leave it there. A quick programming note again. We're assembling a panel of sex workers to have a sex worker involved, led, participating conversation about sex work instead of having another conversation about sex work in which sex workers are cut out of that conversation and discussed like they are, I don't know, moon rocks or cats that can't speak for themselves. We're getting some sex workers together for that condo. And we welcome your questions right now for sex workers that you would like actual sex workers to tackle 206-201-2720 if you want to record a question for a sex worker or just record a question or a comment for a future show give us a buzz 206-201-2720 follow me on twitter at fake dan savage follow this week's guest diana adams on twitter at diana adams esq also we are doing a special live taping of the savage Lovecast on february 14th that's valentine's day at seattle's neptune theater i'll be there caitlin doty Ask a Mortician will be there. We have comedians and singers. It's going to be a great, fun way to pass the annual Love-A-Thon nightmare. That is Valentine's Day, and we're doing a death-themed Valentine's Day special. You want to be there for the taping. Get tickets at StrangerTickets.com. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.